You're in the right place for thoughtful conversation affecting ourselves, our communities, and our world. You're in the living room with Jerry Bonds. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We're talking about immigration this month. No, not the volatile political and policy side, and not whether you might be for or against a bigger wall. Not even whether you define the thousands of people currently flocking to our border with Mexico as refugees or asylum seekers or illegal immigrants. I'm hoping we learn more about immigrants as people during this program. Who are they? Why are they living and working in our communities? And what is life like for them? First, though, we're going to see what it's like before they get here by taking a trip to the border at El Paso, Texas, and Juarez, Mexico, with my first guest, Rachel Jones. Rachel is a Spanish teacher at Mount St. Mary High School in Oklahoma City. Last November, she took a trip to the border as a participant in the second annual Border Immersion Experience, sponsored by the Sisters of Mercy of the Americas. So glad you're here, Rachel. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Your interest in immigration really goes back a long way in your life. So this wasn't just a whim of yours to go and see the border, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I grew up mostly in Oklahoma City, and Mm -hmm. uh, my family and I lived in Capitol Hill for a very long time. So, um, Large Hispanic population, right? Mm -hmm. Uh A lot of my friends were either first or second generation immigrants, and so um, I just had a lot of personal experience with them as friends. So you got to know their parents as well, right, who probably had come across the border. Mm -hmm. So you also studied in Mexico during college. That was at OU? Yes. Right? So my junior year, um, I spent a summer in Mexico. I did a immersion program for five weeks in Puebla. And then after, I stayed for two months and just kind of traveled throughout the country. And I remember when you and I talked a couple of weeks ago, um, at one time, you thought you wanted to be an immigration lawyer. What happened yes. there? Um, so that was kind of my dream for about you know five or seven years. Um, Largely just from my experiences from my friends and kind of the discrepancy between a lot of things I was hearing um, from, you know, politicians and in the news about people's opinions about immigrants and then seeing them in real life as just regular people. Um, that kind of started my interest. And then um, also just I was interested interested in law. And so my first major was political science when I was in college. And uh-huh. that's what I planned to do. But... Everything changed, and here you are, a Spanish teacher, and then participating in this yes. experience. So, so what did change? Did you think maybe that you could be more effective this way? Or Yeah, so it was my junior year um, in poli-sci, and just learning about how immigration courts actually work. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like, as a lawyer, I really wouldn't have been able to be that effective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my mind, it would have been so much effort to even become a lawyer and to do all of that and then just be, you know, to have it be futile um, was something that I didn't want to pursue anymore. So here you are teaching Spanish at Mount St. Mary High School, and this opportunity comes up to go to the border. Tell us a little about the group uh, that you were in and the program itself. So this being sponsored by Sisters of Mercy, um, it was open to sisters and then affiliates, so lay people that work for um, the sisters. And so our group consisted of me and then Uh, another educator, a college professor from New Jersey. And then uh, I think we had three sisters, a reporter, and then two individuals from um, like a social activist kind of group in D.C. So I I guess you got to really know them uh, 
for that whole week and bonded with them a little bit. Yes, we all stayed together at the Columban Mission um, mm-hmm. in kind of a dorm room type situation. Mm-hmm. So we got to know each other pretty well. All right, take us with you on this week-long journey. You, you visited many, many places and met people. Let's start with the places and what struck you the most. So we were primarily in El Paso and Juarez. Um, and and then Arizona at the end of the trip. And we met with individuals who work um, both professionally with immigrants in legal services and uh, medical services, and then also just volunteers um, who spend a lot of time with people who have just come over the border. And... um, So you went to a clinic, for example, and and a school? Yes. So in Ciudad Juarez, we went to a clinic. Um, It's kind of reduced costs or free. Um, mm-hmm. The woman who, Dr. San Juana, um, who runs it, she deals with a lot of people working in either maquiladoras or who are migrant workers. Okay, explain that in English now, that um, lovely word you just said. <laughs> so a maquiladora is like a, a big factory. Um, ah, generally, they're owned okay. by companies out that aren't Mexican companies, so U.S. Mm-hmm. will outsource um, their labor. And the individuals who work there don't get I mean, they're not decent living wages. Mm -hmm. Um, They usually don't have any protections. And so on-the-job injuries are untreated or, you know, they'll be kind of tricked into signing away their rights at getting, you know, compensation to take care of themselves. So the organizations that you uh, looked at in Juarez did not just deal with immigrants uh, at all, but it kind of highlighted the conditions that probably motivate them to want to cross the border. Yeah, so... um, the, we, we went to an after-school program um, that was run by a former maquiladora worker who was injured, and um, she was no longer able to work in the factory. And so um, with the church, she became she started running this after-school program. And for her, it was really important because a lot of the children in the community needed somewhere to be that was safe after school. Um, their parents would work long hours, and they were unsupervised, and she wanted to keep them away from the drug violence and being involved with gangs. So one of the key factors here is violence that, yes. that motivates people to cross illegally. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I know you visited a lot of other places. Give us kind of an idea of some of the ones that really affected you. So I would say um, the DMRS, the Diocesan Migrant and Refugee Services, we learned a lot about just actually how complex immigration is in general. Um, I had no idea. And uh, also the Annunciation House that we visited in El Paso. Uh, We learned a lot about just kind of their experiences before they come here and then hearing testimonials by um, Ruben Garcia, who runs the Annunciation House, um, of the kind of things that he's dealt with and their process from getting here, encountering Border Patrol and ICE, and then, you know, being detained and going through the system. And so the Annunciation House, we want to emphasize again, is in in El Paso. Yes. They've crossed, but they don't really know what to do from there. So it's kind of a shelter? Yeah, so they provide um, shelter, food, and then just like for their basic needs that people have. Mm-hmm. Because most people that cross the border, you know, from that desert in Chihuahua, they don't have anything. They have what they're able to carry. Um, and so it's providing those basic services, and they do also help people that are known to ICE but not mm-hmm. currently detained. And um, they've been working with immigrants since 1978. So you watched all of this in action and yes. some incredible volunteers, right, doing mm-hmm. this work 
just out of the goodness of their hearts. Yeah, so Annunciation House is, I think, entirely by volunteers. Um, and the young woman we um, did our tour with through the facility, she was, I think, like 19 or 20 years old, mm. but a volunteer that came from New York just because, you know, she felt called to go there. Okay, um, Arizona was life-changing for you, yes. I think. That's so, the Eloy Detention Center, is that the right name? That's correct, mm-hmm. yes. So, you know, Annunciation House was kind of the best case scenario for someone coming here um, without resources, and Eloy seemed like emblematic of maybe the worst. Why was that? Um, well, first of all, it's so rural. It's so isolated. And um, like we learned at the DMRS, a lot of ICE facilities, detention facilities are. And, you know, whether that's intentional um, or, you know, just for cost, I don't know. But um, we... It was very isolated to get there in the first place. So these people don't have access to their families. I mean, imagine if your family lives in Phoenix, which is hours away, they're not going to be able to visit you in Eloy. And these are people who are being detained, right, as they they decide whether they uh, have committed a crime or not by crossing? Exactly. And Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily, not all of them have come here illegally. Some do come to the border, present Mm -hmm. themselves to Border Patrol and, you know, try to seek refuge, but they are still detained. Okay, you met a lot of people along the way, too, who are in this system and have a job in this system. And uh, tell us about the Border Patrol person that you met. So we did meet with a Border Patrol officer in El Paso, and um, he was actually, I think, second-generation immigrant. And so— how interesting. Yeah, and, you know, fluent in Spanish, and he was, you know, Mexican nationality. And so he had a very interesting perspective, um, having worked there for, I want to say, 13 years— his um, kind of approach to everything was, you know, he's very sensitive to immigrant rights and human rights, and that's very important to him that they treat them fairly and humanely, but they do have a security concern. And so, you know, when they're patrolling, if they come upon someone, their first thought is, you know, protecting themselves and making sure they're not dangerous or criminals. And so there is a necessity that they do process them. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, Border Patrol turns them over to ICE. And so, Really, their only control is kind of seeing who comes to the border and patrolling that, essentially. Um, So, you know, he was kind of limited in what he was able to say and able to tell us. But at the end of the day, his perspective is this is his job to do. He can only do what he's ordered to, essentially, Mm -hmm. as, you know, a federal agent. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they are very limited in their capacity. You came to some realizations, I'm sure as a result of this. And uh, as I said, it had to be life-changing. So in terms of what you see as the the human side of things and what motivates these people and how we, um, how we go forward, give us some idea of what you're thinking. So a lot of the push factors, the reasons for which people come here are largely outside of our control, um, you know, gang violence, drug violence. Um, I would say for us, it's important to educate ourselves in, on what's happening in these countries. You know, Honduras, El Salvador, Mexico, find out why people are leaving. You know, no one mm-hmm. just leaves their home country because they feel like it. Mm-hmm. Um, the reasons why they're coming here and taking these risks. And um, There's a huge fear factor, too, isn't there? An ignorance factor when they finally make the move to go to the border. Absolutely. So because our system is so complex, um, there's a lot of ignorance or confusion about how things work here. I mean, even American citizens, we, most of us don't understand how the right. system works. And so for those immigrants coming here, um, ICE and Border Patrol are kind of conflated as just La Migra or migration, immigration. La Migra is just yes. a common term. 
for yeah mm-hmm. for any kind of you know officer that deals with immigrants and so you know they're not sure what their rights are they aren't sure what to expect when they encounter border patrol and that's dangerous because you know they're not aware of their rights their human rights to not be mistreated and so there are always going to be people that take advantage of that situation and so there are a lot of um activist groups are very concerned for what happens to them once they get here. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think we need to be more aware of, keeping them accountable. And then we have um, this bureaucracy, this Mm -hmm. system that is just unwieldy, right? And had you become a lawyer, you would have (laughs) dealt with that every day. Yes. So um, that's something we talked a lot about, and it was actually very discouraging to me, is um, the inconsistencies in granting rates of refugee status and... um, allowing people to come here for asylum, you can actually look up Syracuse University has a database where you can look at statistics of judges' decisions on granting these. And depending on where someone is sent to have their case heard, you know, some district in New York or somewhere in Texas, your chance of getting refugee status can be 5%, it can be 82%. Yeah. It's so inconsistent. And, and years and years and years exactly. of waiting. Yeah. Okay, so what can we do uh, in this last little time that we have here? What can we as citizens do, do you think? Well, I think recently we've actually seen an example of that um, with that outcry at family separations mm-hmm. and child detention. Um, I mean, the government did respond to that. The response mm-hmm. hasn't been perfect and it hasn't been rolling out that well, but they have, there was an executive order to, you know, for a request to overturn a case that, you know, largely impacted how we separate families. Um, And then the federal order to reunite a lot of those families. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, being active on social media, talking to representatives, we do have an impact. You can influence, but you have to be educated first. Contacting your congressman, really important, right? And what about you? Personal goal? You write to some of these immigrants, don't you? Yes. So um, there's an organization called Civic, and they have a pen pal program if you're 18 years or older. Ah. And so that helps, you know, kind of end isolation is one of their goals. So even just corresponding with someone, telling, you know, showing you care and just on a personal level. Rachel, I really admire you. I wish I was in your Spanish classroom. (laughs) I think your students are very lucky, and I'm so glad you had this experience and could share it with us. Thanks. Thank you so much. So... Once an immigrant makes it across the border, how is he or she going to make it here? There are close to 115,000 immigrant residents in the Oklahoma City metro area alone. When we come back, we'll find out about a safe harbor for some of them, where they can begin to beat the language barrier and maybe even start their journey to citizenship. You're in the living room. The Living Room with Jerry Bonds is supported by Adventure Road, From the Red River border to the heart of Oklahoma City, the Great American Road Trip has been reborn. Information at AdventureRoad.com. Welcome back. I'm sure like me you've traveled to a foreign country where you often don't have a clue what anyone is saying around you. So let's tackle the language barrier as we continue to try to understand what the immigrant experience might be like here in Oklahoma or anywhere in the USA for that matter. I came across an announcement recently about three new free classes in language and citizenship at the Opportunities Industrialization Center of Oklahoma County, or OIC as it's usually called. The third class, by the way, is called Coffee Chat. Everyone who wants to learn conversational English is welcome, and I mean everyone, no matter what their citizenship status or reading level might be. And that doesn't even begin to touch on what else these immigrant students gain in comfort and confidence along the way. 
Dijon Jones is executive director of OIC, and Ashley Roan teaches the conversational English class. I'm so glad to have you both here today. Great to be here. Thanks. Oh, it's a delight to be here. Dijon, why don't you explain just a tiny bit about what the OIC actually does in general, not just for immigrants, of course. Sure, sure. You know, OIC of Oklahoma County, we are a school for adult students. Uh, we have education and training programs that have a bridge-based emphasis to kind of catapult people from where they are to where they need to be. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing this work for 52 years. And there are counterparts in the country, but how about in, in Oklahoma itself? In Oklahoma, we are the only OIC, but we've got 38 other OICs throughout the country, each one serving their community. And it was just this year that you turned toward helping the immigrant population, right? Yes. What yes. motivated you that way? You know, first, we, we realized that there was a tremendous outcry in our community. The immigrant issue became the hot-button issue of our day. And, and very often, a lot of what's happening in the media made that conversation a they and them, when really it's a conversation that is us. These are our neighbors and our friends. Absolutely. I like that a lot. A lot. And they feel safe at OIC, these people. Who come you know, here. it's um, because of the lot of um, fear-mongering that's been happening, you know, with the politics and things like that, no matter where you stand on that issue, there's been a tremendous atmosphere um, with ICE and all of that, you know, that, that has made people afraid to try new things. Mm -hmm. And so finally, we're beginning to see some traction where they realize that they can be safe at OIC. So you're offering these three classes. How often now? Those classes are offered twice a week on Mondays and Wednesdays, uh, conversational English, and we have an introduction to citizenship component as but, well. And it's a how many week cycle and then you start over again? It's an eight week cycle and then we'll typically take off a week, maybe two, to do some tweaking of the program mm -hmm. and then start right back up again. All right, Ashley, you teach the conversational English class and boy, are you... Uh, qualified to teach that. <laughs> yes. We're reading your resume. Why? Uh, wow. Give us an idea of how it works. So basically, we kind of took an assessment of the things students wanted to learn. How do I open a bank account? You know, if I um, if I need to go to the store, what type, types of things do I need to know? Food items, you mm -hmm. know, how to read an aisle, what is an aisle, mm -hmm. um, things like that. And so um, we really try and give them direct scenarios, you know, mock basically role play. So in other words, if, uh, if they're going to the bank, they, you, somebody plays a teller mm -hmm. and somebody plays right. the customer. Yeah, and a lot of things, it's not necessarily that they don't know how to say it, they can't anticipate the response. So uh. if you don't know what's coming towards you, you get a little afraid and you, you clam up, right? Yeah. Um, especially if it's your second language. Uh, so that's kind of something that we looked into and um, just since we're in the third cycle of this, a lot of them were saying, I want to work on some pronunciation things. Um, mm -hmm. I, nobody can understand me. So we worked that in. All right. Give us a picture of your students. They're very diverse, yeah. all the different immigrant experiences, mm -hmm. right? We've got a range. I've got a group of 16 or 17-year-olds that come in. Um, really? I, mm -hmm. didn't, I didn't expect to hear that. Yeah. Well, they're new. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just appeared this week. And um, they, they have issues with reading as well as um, um, speaking in general. But I also have, um, you know, some 20, 30-year-olds, 40s, people with kids, um, folks that are retired. Um, and I have immigrants from all countries, Vietnam, Honduras, Mexico, 
you know, I think a lot of people, when they think about immigrants, they always think about Mexico. Right. right? It's right. definitely not true. Huh. Yeah. Okay. All have, obviously, different reasons for enrolling. Yeah. Right. Give yeah. us an example of a few, because some of these are even professional people sometimes. True. Right? Yeah. Some of them, they want another job. They want a better paying job. For example, I have two, I have two women, women, women in my class that they were nurses in their home country. One is from Cameroon mm-hmm. originally. Um, the other one is from Vietnam. But their their English isn't strong enough to pass an exam to be able to get their boards in this country. Speaking, mm-hmm. spoken English, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of them had issues all across the board. She'd never taken an English class. One, she um, has a French background, so it was a little easier for her, mm-hmm. the structure. So we mm-hmm. forget sometimes how these people have mm-hmm. to struggle. They could sure. be in highly regarded professions mm-hmm. in their home country, and they come here. And they can't use those skills unless mm-hmm. they pass these kinds of tests. Pass these exams, yeah. You mm. know, one thing that's interesting to note, we, when, when, when you're from America, we greatly underestimate that, first of all, English is one of these, the most difficult languages right. to learn, you know, with slang and all of those things. And one of the things I love about what Ashley does in the classroom is that she helps, helps them be able to start the conversation, engage in small talk, mm-hmm. and the banter that is so common in our cultural society. Mm-hmm. All right, Dijon, uh, tell us about the other two classes. One's citizenship, yes. right? We have the conversational English class and then the citizenship class. One of the things we added to it was our Coffee Chat Tuesdays. Now, on, with Coffee Chat, you know, immigrants are able to come, people who are not, who for which English is their second language, can come, have coffee, have a donut, and then they have a safe place to practice their English. So can they just come once, or do they enroll and they come to every Tuesday class? How's With that Coffee work? Chat, it's every Tuesdays from 10.30 to 11.30. There's no enrollment. They can just drop in and have some conversation, practice their English, make some new friends. And that's and great. That's and what about the citizenship class now? That's uh, the citizenship class is amazing. It's a partnership um, funded by the Institute of Museum and Library Sciences in partnership with the Department of Libraries and with Oklahoma City University, their TESOL program. And okay, so what's a TESOL program for our listeners? Now, Ashley will have to help me with what TESOL stands for. Yeah, it, it stands for Teaching English to Speakers of Other Languages. Okay, T-E-S-O-L. Okay, got it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and so uh, the students in their program provide the instruction for citizenship, teaches them basic civics, and prepares them for the U.S. citizenship uh, exam. You know, and most of us um, who are born here, I will tell you it's a very difficult test, and most of us couldn't pass Really? It. Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay, and and do they um, get prepared in that eight-week cycle to to be able to take the test, most of them? Yes, and the test requires that they be able to speak, read, and write English, Mm -hmm. you know, as well as pass uh, basic questions about our governmental structure Mm -hmm. and basic civics. Ashley, this has to be such a learning experience for you as well, I I can only imagine. Give us some idea about what insights you've gained uh, in general about your students and immigrants. Yeah. Because I know you've traveled a lot, and we're going to talk a little about that, so you already have some insights. Um, I learned a lot, especially because I don't usually teach younger folks in high school. Um, I've learned a little bit about what they're learning in school 
and some reasons why some younger folks are dropping out that are immigrants. Mm. Um, one is that they maybe have a learning disability. Um, they're not used to the school structure the way that we view school in America because it's different in their country. Their approach to education is different and they haven't quite adjusted to that. Um, or they're just typical things. Um, you know, someone has gotten pregnant and they've dropped out. Um, so fear has to be a big factor here, as we talked about in the first segment, too. Um, what do you hear in the classroom about those fears? Yeah, a lot of them, they, they do have a fear of the police. They don't know how to interact with them, mm -hmm. um, especially if they have a language barrier. They don't even know the words to say. And obviously, mm -hmm. if you have fear that's blocking you, mm -hmm. it's going to be very difficult to articulate what's happening. Not only that, but they don't understand what's being said to them. As native English speakers, we don't realize how fast we speak and how many yeah. words we omit. Yeah. Um, they're afraid of deportation mm -hmm. all the time, right? Yeah, and you can identify with that. Yeah. You told me a story I couldn't believe when you were traveling in Turkey, right? Yeah, I uh, had lived in Turkey for about nine months, and I had moved to a different city. And Turkey's immigration situation is very different than here. It's kind of, I'm not really sure how to explain it. But uh. basically, I should have gone back to the city where I had lived before to renew my visa uh -oh. and my residence permit. Mm. It had expired, and so I actually was... Um, I was actually in the country illegally for probably about three or four months. And what was going on with you during that? In your head. <laughs> it, it was too difficult to move uh, to go back to that city. It was probably about eight hours away, um, uh -huh. and that was by like bus. Uh, so I just I just didn't do it. What, but you, what, what happened then when you went to the airport? You must have yeah. been petrified. I was petrified, <laughs> but I also had the knowledge like, it's okay if they deport me. I'm going home anyway. You're going to the USA, <laughs> right? You're going to the States. Right. Um, but basically, on the on the residence permit, it shows like your job, uh, your name, where you're from. And they saw that I was a teacher at a university ah. there. So they gave me a break. I didn't have to pay the full amount. Um, I only had Good. to pay equivalent of like maybe 40 bucks. Wow. Did you just hear that for the first time, Deshaun? I did just you didn't hear know that, that for oh, the first okay. time. I thought to myself, man, how scary that is. Uh, how can people enroll in this? Let's make sure everybody knows how, to, sure. how, that, how that process works. Sure. Uh, in order to enroll in any of the programs that OIC has, all they have to do is give us a call, 235-2651. That's area code 405. They can also go to our website, which is OICOKC. Org. But no questions asked in terms of these immigration classes so that that fear factor, Ashley, right, uh, right. goes down a whole no, lot, no, right? No yeah. questions asked. For those classes, um, they are on Monday and Wednesday beginning at 530. Uh -huh. There are no questions asked. They can just come. the door, and, and, in fact, the door is locked. Mm -hmm. We admit the students, you know, once they knock, uh, and we leave the door locked. So that, that increases their feeling of safety. What else can we do? In, in this state and in this country. Uh, I know, Ashley, you, you have some personal goals of, of things that you, you see out there that we should do. Yeah, um, I'm working on getting a welcome center together. I think this would be very helpful for our immigrant population so that it's a one-stop. You come here, you can get information about how you can open a bank account, what that looks like here, um, how to get a car, how to open, um, not open, but um, get an apartment. Do other states have this that they you do. know They do, and oh. I believe Tulsa has one. Oh, but Tulsa, oh, other cities, okay. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm not sure if they're doing exactly the same thing, but I know that other states, they definitely have it, but we're still lacking. So we need to educate ourselves while we also educate the population here. Mm -hmm. That's good. Okay, and I know that you 
definitely intend to continue these, right, Oh, absolutely. Maybe we expand them a little bit even? You know, and, and a potential expansion. You know, one of the things that we've done recently, we kind of turned the tables um, by having a conversational Spanish class. Oh, cool. And okay. that took off, at, you know, so big with a partnership with MetroTech, we ended up having to move the class over there. And so what we're learning, we're now in the position of the immigrant. I have learned a lot today. It's been a pleasure to have you both. And I think I'm going to sit in on one of these classes if it's okay. Yes. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Our engineer is Randy Kemp. Our announcer is Ken Bonds. And our website manager is Rachel Meinke. Take a look at our website at thelivingroomgb.com and listen to any program of your choice. I'm Jerry Bonds. Until next time in the living room, the distressing and contentious news on the immigration front will no doubt continue, even as we yearn for a fair and compassionate resolution. In the midst of it all, I'm reminded of an observation by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He said, Remember, remember always that all of us, you and I especially, are descended from immigrants and revolutionists. Bye, everyone. The Living Room with Jerry Bonds is supported by Adventure Road. From the Red River border to the heart of Oklahoma City, the Great American Road Trip has been reborn. Information at AdventureRoad.com.